This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey, this is Josh Levine, the host of One Year. I hope you're enjoying our season on 1990. This week, we have a story from our senior producer, Evan Chung. It's about a fight over censorship and free expression, and I think you'll really enjoy it. But I am going to warn you that this episode includes extremely graphic sexual content. So proceed at your own risk. Here's Evan. When Jesse McBride was a little kid, his mom would take him all around their neighborhood. They lived in downtown New York in the 70s. Nobody had a lot of money, but they did have a community. My mother was in the kind of punk rock scene at that time. I remember walking a lot and going to like, I'd just go to artist studios and they lived in their studios and it was rough, but it was very intimate in a way. They were in the middle of one of the most storied and creative periods in New York's history. And that creativity is at the center of Jesse's earliest memories. There's one moment he'll never forget. It was in 1976, when he was about five years old. I I remember my mom saying Robert was going to come over and take some pictures of me. Robert was an ambitious young photographer and a regular at the bar where Jesse's mom was a server. She had posed for him before, and now it was Jesse's turn to get his picture taken. I, I just have this memory of him being in like a leather jacket, and he had his cameras, and there was a big window in the kitchen, and he was sort of lit from behind. Robert had arrived at the apartment as Jesse was finishing up with bath time. We had this big sink, like this giant sink in the kitchen, and I used to take baths in the sink. And I remember, like, I got out of the bath, toweled off and running around, and, you know, I was always naked at that. I, I mean, I ran around naked all the time. And Robert started taking pictures. As Jesse went around the kitchen doing five-year-old kid things, Robert gave him the occasional direction. You know, he would just say, like, uh, stand here or sit there or whatever. And, and I felt pretty comfortable in front of a camera. And I was a cute kid, and I, I knew how to, like, smile and do the right pose or whatever. And at some point, I think I started jumping on the chair. And then he's like, OK, just stay still. That shot was the keeper. A naked Jesse perched up on the back of an armless chair next to the fridge. Legs kind of not spread apart, but like open, dangling down the back of the chair. And that's kind of it. When Robert gave a print of the photo to Jesse's mom, she was ecstatic. Oh, hugely proud of it. Yeah. I mean, it was like always displayed as something that was prized. Jesse's dad, who lived in L.A., loved the photo, too. He put it up in the kitchen and it stayed there as Jesse got older much to the amusement of his teenage friends. I remember, like, finding them gathered around the picture and, like, oh, naked and penis and, you know. Uh, I I actually physically took it down several times, just very embarrassed of it and kind of tried (laughs) tried to hide it whenever I could. In 1990, Jesse was going off to college. Living in his freshman dorm, he figured he could stop worrying about the art on his parents' walls. But he was wrong. I started getting just calls after calls after calls after calls. People everywhere were talking about his picture. And many of them didn't see it as a sweet childhood moment. They were claiming that it was something else entirely. That it was child pornography. 
the family friend who'd taken Jesse's picture back in the 1970s was Robert Maplethorpe. In the decades since, he'd become one of the most famous photographers in the world and one of the most controversial. In 1990, his work ignited a firestorm. And when Jesse's portrait reached a museum in Cincinnati, it would be at the center of a vicious fight over obscenity and the First Amendment, one that threatened the future of art in America. The whole world is watching a city which, after Robert Maplethorpe, will never be the same. How dare you decide for everybody else what they can see? Censorship has to constantly find something to thrive on. It says, feed me, feed me. Now it is feeding on art. This is one year, 1990. Art or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. I captured something at a certain time about a certain place, New York, that uh, can't be captured anymore. This is Robert Maplethorpe in a 1988 documentary by the BBC. And that period's over somehow, you know. Things have changed. As New York changed, so did Maplethorpe's work. He moved on from the rough-edged spontaneity of his portrait of Jesse McBride. His photographs instead became masterpieces of form and technique, exquisitely composed and gorgeously lit studio shots. And those pictures had turned Maplethorpe into an art world superstar. A dozen years after photographing Jesse for free, wealthy patrons were paying Maplethorpe $10,000 to take their portraits. His prints sold for record prices, and in 1988, the Whitney Museum in New York opened a major solo exhibition of his work. And I just happened to be in New York, and I went to the Whitney to see the Robert Maplethorpe show. I'd seen a few Maplethorpes before then. Dennis Berry was the director of another museum, the Contemporary Arts Center in Cincinnati. And it was a wonderful show. The work was beautiful. On the gallery walls were portraits of celebrities like Richard Gere and Arnold Schwarzenegger, haunting still lifes of flowers. And there were Maplethorpe's almost classical explorations of the nude male form. That's what struck me more than anything else. The nudes were beautiful, powerfully photographed. He wasn't the only one in the gallery captivated by them. There were two or three young women viewing the exhibition. There, there were multiple images of the same model. And they were able to identify him by his penis. <laughs> I thought, wow, very sharp. Dennis was always on the lookout for new art for his museum. And I thought, I really would like to get this exhibition for Cincinnati. The Whitney had no plans to send its show on tour. But the Institute of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia was putting together its own retrospective of Maplethorpe's work. And that exhibition was going to travel around the country. When Dennis called up the curator there, she told him it was perfect timing. Another museum had just pulled out. And she said, we have an opening. And I said, we'll take it when she says, great, there's an opening because another museum dropped out. Was there a moment where you're like, hmm? No, there was a moment like, sounds like a good opportunity. 
<laughs> Maybe I'm stupid. Dennis Berry's museum had been established in 1939, making it one of the earliest in the country dedicated to contemporary art. In the 80s, it was on the second floor of an office building in downtown Cincinnati. You know, you walked up some stairs, and then there was a wide-open center area under a dome, and I just fell in love with that place. Mary Magner joined the staff of the Contemporary Arts Center in 1983. The CAC was known for putting on shows that were always a little edgy. The curators were always looking for things that sort of pushed the boundaries of what you were expecting. That earned the CAC a loyal following in town, but not the wide audiences of the symphony or the big Cincinnati Art Museum. We were sort of like a little secret. I think there were only 10 of us full time. We were sort of like winging it, I think, a lot of the times. Mary managed the CAC bookstore. She sold postcards and all sorts of art books, including the catalogs of exhibitions featured in the museum. When the catalogs for the Robert Maplethorpe show arrived, she opened one of them up. She was curious to see the images coming to the CAC because she wasn't super familiar with his work. Only from his postcards, that we carried postcards with his flowers and his portraits. So we got the catalogs and I was looking through them and I thought, whoa, that's, this, this is going to be interesting. The exhibition coming to the CAC had a lot more photos than the one in New York. This show had two pictures of naked children, including the portrait of five-year-old Jesse McBride standing on a chair after bath time. It would also feature what Maplethorpe called the X-Portfolio. The X-Portfolio was a rarely displayed collection of graphic sexual images. There were 13 of them in all, depicting various sadomasochistic acts. One shows a man's fist up someone else's anus. There's a photo of a man urinating into another's mouth. And another shows Maplethorpe himself with a bullwhip inserted in his rectum. In that BBC interview, Maplethorpe said he wanted to document the gay leather subculture he'd been part of in the 70s, a scene that was vanishing in the face of AIDS. I felt like almost an obligation to record those things, to make images that nobody's seen before and do it in a way that's, you know, aesthetic. Maplethorpe had helped select the photographs for the show to represent his work in all its facets. There would be more than 170 images in all, from his recent floral pictures back to Polaroids of his earliest muse and former lover, the musician Patti Smith. The title of the traveling retrospective was Robert Maplethorpe, The Perfect Moment. You know, that's, that's my rush in doing photography. You know, it's like you get to a place where it's really kind of like, you don't know why it's happening, but it's happening. You've like somehow tapped into a space that's magic. The perfect moment opened in Philadelphia in December 1988. The art critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer raved about the show. He wrote that Robert Maplethorpe had marked his place in art history in a career of less than 20 years. Tragically, that was all the time that Maplethorpe would have. I was asleep when he died. I had called the hospital to say one more good night, but he had gone under beneath layers of morphine. This is Patti Smith from the audiobook of her memoir, Just Kids. I held the receiver and listened to his labored breathing through the phone, knowing I would never hear him again. 
Robert Mapplethorpe died on March 9, 1989. He had been sick with AIDS for some time. In his final self-portraits, he's gaunt and shockingly frail. Looking at him, you'd never know he was just 42 years old. Overnight, the Perfect Moment exhibition transformed into a memorial, a place to gather and reflect on what he'd given to the world. But these assessments of Mapplethorpe's life and legacy didn't stay in the galleries for long. Within months of his death, the conversation moved to the U.S. Congress. The Arnie crowd, well, I'm sure that they found some artistic merit in that Mapplethorpe photo with the bullwhip sticking out of his rear end. The sorriest kind of so-called art. Jesse Helms was a Republican senator from North Carolina. He would be the man leading the nation into an unprecedented controversy over the limits of free expression. It had all started in May 1989, when Helms discovered a work called Piss Christ, in which the artist Andre Serrano had photographed a plastic crucifix immersed in urine. Mr. President, he's not an artist, he's a jerk. And he's taunting the American people, and I resent it. What infuriated Helms the most was that this alleged blasphemy had received federal funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. Helms and other conservatives pledged to investigate the NEA. They demanded to know what else it had sanctioned with taxpayer money. And they did not like what they found. Members of Congress are also outraged by the endowment's funding of the late photographer Robert Mapplethorpe. They were alarmed to discover a $30,000 grant to the Perfect Moment exhibition, which they said was morally reprehensible trash. Mapplethorpe was a talented photographer. He took some good pictures, but the ones we are talking about are pictures that deliberately promoted homosexuality and child molestation. Again and again, Jesse Helms conflated Mapplethorpe's S&M photos with his pictures of children, invoking the false trope that gay men were sexual predators. A conservative Christian group singled out the portrait of Jesse McBride, claiming that it was pornography created for pedophile homosexuals. Which is so ridiculous looking at the photograph. You know, clearly it wasn't child pornography. Jesse McBride rejects the idea that Mapplethorpe had sexualized him. I just don't, I don't buy it. The actual experience of that photo being taken was completely innocent. It's a kid being naked, which is what kids are supposed to be. But to Helms and his allies, what Jesse thought didn't matter. More than 100 members of Congress signed a letter to the NEA expressing their outrage over the Mapplethorpe show. The letter ended with a threat. If the NEA has enough money to fund this type of project, then perhaps the NEA has too much money to handle responsibly. I was at a meeting of the Association of Art Museum Directors in Rhode Island. A few days later, Dennis Berry of the Contemporary Arts Center was sitting in an auditorium when the president of his organization took the stage. And he said, I have a terrible announcement to make. The Corcoran Gallery in Washington has withdrawn from the Maplethorpe exhibition for fear of the political reprisals. There was a gasp in the audience. After a contentious debate, the Corcoran board voted to oust the Maplethorpe photos. Fearing an uproar from conservatives in Congress and a punitive cut in funding. And I was, you know, sitting there with a friend 
from San Diego. And he leaned over to me and he said, do you know anybody who's taking that show? And I said, yes, I am. And he said to me, you're fucked. He said, you're fucked. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I am. The Maplethorpe exhibition wasn't coming to Dennis's museum in Cincinnati for another 10 months. In the meantime, the museum world accused DC's Corcoran Gallery of cowardice and betrayal. Before the year was up, its director resigned under pressure. Dennis swore that he would take a different path in Cincinnati. I just thought we can't do it. We cannot back down over political fears and censorship. He decided to call a meeting of the Contemporary Arts Center's board. He was going to show them every photo from the Maplethorpe show. Then they could make up their own minds about whether it was art or smut. We were in a big conference room looking around a table and looking at all these images, and I know that some of them were probably absolutely shocking for some of the board members. They looked at naked Jesse in his mom's kitchen and a little girl with her genitals exposed as she lifts up her skirt. And they saw all the graphic S&M photos in Maplethorpe's export folio. And I remember one of my board members said, so what's this? And I said, well, it's called fisting. And, and she said, oh, I've never heard of that. It was, just like, it was so funny. It just made me laugh. Oh, fisting, How, what's that all about? Although the content of the export folio is explicit, Maplethorpe shot it in the same classical style of his other work. The figures appear almost like Roman statuary, if Roman statues wore leather bondage gear. Seeing it all laid out in the conference room, the board members agreed that Maplethorpe's art should be displayed in Cincinnati. The board voted unanimously to present the exhibition. There were still several cities to go before the traveling exhibition would arrive in April 1990. As the show made its way across America, Dennis paid close attention to see what he was in for. The next stop was Hartford, Connecticut, and nothing really happened. They had two little old ladies with signs, <laughs> and then went on to Berkeley, and you knew nothing was going to happen in Berkeley, and nothing did. Did you think maybe after seeing it go off more or less without a hitch in Connecticut and in California that maybe, maybe you're okay? Yeah. Yeah, I was naive enough and <laughs> hopeful enough. But in Washington, Senator Jesse Helms was just getting started. I want senators to come over here, if they have any doubt, and look at the pictures. Don't believe the Washington Post. Don't believe the New York Times. Look at the pictures. We'll be back in a minute. For Monty Lobb, it all started with a phone call. He'd just been named the president of an organization called Citizens for Community Values, based in Cincinnati. It is the largest local traditional family values group in the country. I think I was on the job maybe a week or two, and I got a, a call from Jesse Helm's office. And they said, listen, this exhibit is going to come to Cincinnati. And we think you've got uh, a major First Amendment fight on your hands. Jesse Helms had something he wanted to show Monty, so he got summoned to Washington. It, it, it was kind of like some kind of a, a mystery novel. They had like one of his staff members meet me at a back door on a Saturday morning, and I, he just gave me like a, a brown vanilla envelope with the images. 
when you took these images out of the envelope, what did you think? I was like, whoa, well, that's, that's uh, <laughs> this is this is this is this is pretty wild. Whether it was the fisting, uh, whether it was the bullwhip up the anus, whether it was the golden showers, I mean, it, it was not your run-of-the-mill pornography. It, it was shocking, to say the least. Helms's staff told Monty that they had reached out to him for a reason. We know the history of Cincinnati. We know what you've done. Because for decades, Cincinnati had been the national epicenter of the fight against obscenity. Smut peddlers do not have the right to contaminate our society. It started in the 1950s with a group called Citizens for Decent Literature. In films like this one, they warned of how easy it is for a young person to fall under the sway of pornography. He is even enticed to enter the world of homosexuals, lesbians, sadists, masochists. In the 70s, law enforcement took the anti-smut movement to another level. When local officials began a drive to rid the city of adult bookstores and theaters. The police and prosecutors chased off Cincinnati's massage parlors and strip clubs. Most infamously, they convicted hustler publisher Larry Flint on obscenity charges. So we had this long history of people in the community saying, hey, no, no, this is not good, we don't want this. If people are gonna do this, let them go elsewhere. Monty Lobb and the Citizens for Community Values stayed vigilant. They were on the lookout for adult video stores, X-rated cable channels, anything trying to encroach on Cincinnati. The Supreme Court had ruled that every community set its own standard for what's obscene. Monty feared that if his group failed to act even one time, it would create a dangerous precedent. Somebody down the road could say, well, Cincinnati accepted this then this must be their new set of community values. So when he was handed an envelope of Robert Maplethorpe's photos, he knew he couldn't let them be displayed in his hometown. Because it's about the individual's dignity. From a Christian worldview, we're all made in the image of God. So whether it's that child, that innocent child, with their genitalia exposed, or it's the fisting picture, is that the kind of thing that we want to put in public art galleries? Then what's next year's art? You know, people having sex with animals? Images of people having sex with dead people? Where, where, where do we draw the line? Jesse Helms had contacted the right guy. Yeah, that's how it all started. It's just, put this in the hands of these people, and they know what to do. In February 1990, with about six weeks to go before the exhibition opened, Citizens for Community Values launched a public campaign to stop pornographic art from being shown in Cincinnati. You're not talking Michelangelo's David or Picasso or Manet. I mean, these are actual, real-life images. And they sent out 30,000 mailings. Dennis Berry had hoped the Contemporary Art Center might get through the exhibition without much trouble. Now he discovered these letters going around the city that were making disturbing claims about his museum. That we were bringing child pornography to Cincinnati. We got one at my house. Monty Lobb spoke out against what he called the use of prepubescent children as nude models and said that the S&M photos were not in the community's best interest and Citizens for Community Values was gathering support. The rallying cry went up against the photo exhibit that it was anti-family. Hundreds turned out to protest. Suddenly you realize they were initiating a huge campaign to bring us down. 
Monty Lobb and his allies were arguing that Maplethorpe's art wasn't just immoral, it was illegal. Free speech is not absolute. There are exceptions to free speech. One of them is obscenity. Ohio had laws against publicly displaying obscene material. And the way Monty saw it, these photos clearly fit the definition. And so our, our role was just to, behind the scenes, talk with law enforcement and say, hey, just want you to know so you could do your research to see whether you think you can prosecute these or not. What were you hoping would happen? Well, you, you, I think you were hoping is that the Contemporary Arts Center would say, you know what? Most of the images are fantastic. They're fine. But these that are this, let, let's take this out. Let's, let's do that. And is that censorship? No, again, it's not because we're not the ones that can censor. It's only the government can censor. But you're putting pressure on the government. You're asking them to get involved. Yeah, well, you know, they represent us, right? There's the law. If there's a reasonable suspicion or this is the kind of thing that ought to go to a jury, do your job. Why would you selectively enforce? Enforce all the laws. Early on, Monty found an important ally. The local sheriff had run adult bookstores out of town back in the 70s. Now, he told the press that Maplethorpe's photos were certainly criminally obscene. We knew we had a very fanatical sheriff, and he had said that he was going to take us down. The county prosecutor agreed that the show needed to be investigated. There is a law in Ohio that prohibits the possession, displaying, or presentation of those matters which are deemed obscene. And if the material was declared obscene, the chief of police warned that the photos could be seized and arrest warrants could be issued. If any of this happened, it would be an American first. No art museum had ever been prosecuted for obscenity in the nation's history. A conviction could mean grave consequences for the entire art world. But law enforcement couldn't take any action yet because the museum hadn't actually done anything. There were still two weeks before the exhibit would even arrive in town. From my point of view, these were all people that hadn't seen it. So I don't see how you can make those judgments without seeing it. Bob Sweeney was the preparator of the Contemporary Arts Center. It would be his job to put the art on display. And the museum was making some special plans for how to arrange the Maplethorpe exhibit. As a legal precaution, the most controversial images would be placed in a separate room, and nobody under 18 would be allowed into the show. I thought all of that was a bad idea, but that, that was my personal opinion and it wasn't up to me. I think that's censorship. I don't want anybody telling me what I can look at and what I can't look at. I'd like to make my own decisions. The boxes of Maplethorpe's art finally arrived at the museum at the end of March. And Bob became one of the first people in Cincinnati to see all 175 photographs in person. We start opening crates and setting it up around the room and putting it on the wall. And I do recall looking at some images and thinking, okay, that's disturbing. And that's good. You know, let's be disturbing. Let's shake things up a little bit. And that was the kind of art you wanted to see at the Contemporary Art Center. Owen Finson was the art critic at the Cincinnati Inquirer. When you go to a show and it did something that you just didn't expect it ever to do to you. On Tuesday, April 3rd, Owen was invited to a press preview at the Contemporary Arts Center. The exhibit was ready, and it was his job to tell Cincinnati if the perfect moment had artistic merit. On the basis of his work, he wrote, would Maplethorpe deserve the mantle of greatness? At long last, Cincinnatians will have the opportunity to judge for themselves. 
That's Owen reading from his review. He called Maplethorpe far from perfect. He wrote that his framing is often trivial and that some of his art is derivative. But no one ignores his work because many of Maplethorpe's photographs are incredibly beautiful. He described the artist's floral images as pure, fragile, captured at a perfect instant. And he also considered the photos of the children, of Jessie and the little girl. The little girl sitting with her dress pulled up is an image of pure innocence. The picture is the perfect illustration of the phrase, evil is in the eye of the beholder. The photo of the young boy is equally harmless. And as for the sadomasochistic pictures, he said most visitors would never notice them if they weren't alerted to their presence. It is not so much what he photographed as the way he presented his photographs as works of fine art, worthy of museum display. For that, he was, after all, an original. The city's biggest newspaper had given its stamp of approval. But what was going to happen next, nobody knew. An exhibition of Maplethorpe's photographs has been touring the country. It has now reached Cincinnati. The show is scheduled to open to the public Saturday. A late snow fell over Cincinnati on Friday, April 6th. It was the night before the show's official opening. That evening, they would allow in museum members. Nobody knew how many people to expect, how they would react, or if there was going to be trouble. A couple thousand people show up for this opening. And so people had to wait outside for hours. I'd get them in a line and get them to come in, let so many in and control the crowd. There were so many people in line, Bob Sweeney didn't have time to be nervous about whether the galleries were about to get raided. Well, you know, I might have been a little too worried whether there was ice at the bar that night. The hours went by, and the line worked its way through the museum. And nobody seemed to be upset after seeing Maplethorpe's photos. I don't think anybody came to be offended. I think people were interested in art, and they came to see art, and they did. So from your perspective, was it a successful night? Yeah. I didn't run out of ice. And the police never showed. It was truly a wonderful night. We celebrated that we had dodged the bullet, that, you know, things would be fine. Okay, we'll open, and life will go on. So the next morning, I got up exhausted from the whole thing. I went down there, I think I was wearing an old sweatshirt and a pair of jeans, you know. When the doors opened to the public at 9 a.m., Mary Magner was at her post in the bookstore. And it was packed. People were really excited. You know, it was historical. Just like the night before, the visitors seemed respectful and supportive. And nobody had come in flashing a badge. And I remember, I thought, well, okay, we're, we're fine. I was standing there with Dennis Berry, and he looked at all the people coming in, and he said, I think we're safe. I don't think anything's going to happen. Owen Finson from the Cincinnati Inquirer wasn't so sure. And I said, Dennis, uh, perhaps you've missed the part that four men have gone in that are carrying guns on their hips, and they're each accompanying a woman, and they are obviously sheriffs or marshals. And I've seen the same man go in four times with different women. That's a grand jury. That's when it was, oh my. <laughs> Owen was right. It was a grand jury. 
and they were being taken on a reconnaissance mission to the museum. After they walked through the Maplethorpe show, they headed back to the courthouse to decide if what they just saw was obscene. And then that's when the police came. The speculation is over. It happened. What you're watching now is the Cincinnati police as they made their move today against the Contemporary Arts Center. They were members of the vice squad. This is my sordid life. And they came up to me instantly. The police told Dennis that both the museum and he personally had been indicted on obscenity charges for displaying five of the S&M pictures from Maplethorpe's export folio. He was also charged with illegal use of a minor in nudity-oriented material for photos of a boy and a girl with their genitals exposed. Dennis was facing possible prison time. What had seemed unthinkable was now happening. For the first time, the government had declared that art in a museum was criminally obscene. It turned out they were not only there to serve indictments, but gather evidence. They've made everybody go out. Please leave the premises. And then they closed the galleries while they documented everything. The order to leave left hundreds of paying customers upset and angry. That's what's obscene. It's just, it's just insane. And this crowd kind of got bigger and bigger outside. They heard it on the news that it was closed, so that brought more people down. I think it's horrible. I think that it's an infringement on our First Amendment. It seemed like people just came out of the woodwork. People were lined up on these two staircases that went to the second balcony level. And they were angry. I think it's un-American. These censors are the most un-American commie people I've ever met. There were just people coming, and more and more people coming. Standing down below, waving signs, chanting and chanting and chanting. My biggest fear, quite honestly, was that we were going to have a real scuffle with the police. So I just set up a microphone so that Dennis could come out and talk to them. So be patient, be calm. We want you not to get hurt. As chaos built outside, the police videotaped the exhibition. After a few hours, they were done. They had all the evidence they needed. The Contemporary Arts Center reopened after the police left. But Dennis and his staff struggled to carry on not knowing if the police might come back the next day and shut them down for good. Oh, I was, I was destroyed. I was destroyed by what had just happened. They had finally violated an art institution, a museum. It was, it was devastating. Well, we were, we were appalled. We, were just, we, were, we couldn't believe it had actually happened, that they really came through with it. Well, it's not like glee and like I'm throwing a party. Monty Lobb and Citizens for Community Values had demanded action against the Maplethorpe show, and now they've gotten it. Well, okay, good. We feel like that they're doing their job. It was just kind of like, all right, well, let's see where it goes from here. The police raid of the Contemporary Arts Center would be all over the national news, and a battle over obscenity in Cincinnati was about to become an all-out culture war. And that's when, you know, it took on another life of its own. It, it, it was already ramped up to like maybe eight or nine, and now it goes way up above 10. We'll be right back. Yes, we are going, what we will do is we will put someone at the end of the line. If you're in line, we will stay open until you see it. The Contemporary Arts Center opened early the day after the raid 
to accommodate all the curious visitors. I thought it was an excellent exhibit. I really did. I did not see people gasping or, or turning away going, oh, that's horrible. I wasn't So offended. what? I don't, I don't no. care. There's some I mean, beautiful work. Th there is. Some yeah. of this really good. And, and just to have pictures of new children romping around their living room and to say it's child pornography, it's absurd. It's, it's completely ridiculous. The trial against the CAC and its director, Dennis Barry, wouldn't begin for months. In the meantime, a judge ruled that the museum could keep its doors open. You can come and see it if you want. If you don't, stay home. Even if you came to the Contemporary Arts Center, if you just wanted to see the portraits and the flowers, you could do that. You're not going to accidentally get hurt by it. Mary Magner says that not everyone was supportive. Packages arrived at the museum filled with feces. And the Robert Maplethorpe t-shirts the staff wore made them targets. If we went to the grocery right after work, people would pull their children away, away from us. For Dennis Barry, the worst were the phone calls he got at his house. I was just so we're going to kill your children. Death threats. No exaggeration. Monty Lobb is very clear that Citizens for Community Values was not behind any of this. He says he got death threats himself. But even as the danger ratcheted up, Monty had no regrets about his decision to speak out against the Maplethorpe show. Because I really believe in the position and stance that we took and how we took it. We wouldn't have been doing our mission if we didn't call attention to it. Ironically, the effort to stop people from seeing the entire show has made the Maplethorpe exhibit the hottest ticket in town. We were so busy. There were so many people. We had never had those kind of crowds before. It was nuts. Over the course of seven weeks, more than 81,000 people came to see the show, more visitors than they typically have in an entire year. All kinds of people came. Julia Child came. I love that. When Julia Child walked in, I just died. I can still see her in like her little suit. You can't miss her. She was seven feet tall. And she loved the show. There were memorable non-celebrity visitors, too. Like the Ohio farmer who heard a radio story about the controversy while riding his tractor. He said he turned off his tractor, walked into his house, got his car keys, and drove downtown in his truck because he was going to be damned. There were people telling him he couldn't see something he wanted to see. I just love that. We couldn't have asked for a bigger success. <laughs> the Perfect Moment Show finished its run on May 26, 1990, and was packed up and shipped to the next museum in Boston. The record crowds were apparent proof that Maplethorpe's photos were a match for Cincinnati's community values. So was a poll that showed a substantial majority of residents supported the images being shown. But that didn't change the fact that a court battle was looming. As the controversy drags on, more Cincinnatians say they are embarrassed by it, and they don't see much relief in sight as the city moves ahead with its case against the art museum. Cincinnatians weren't the only ones getting notoriety they hadn't asked for. It was my first year in college, and so I just got this, like, instant fame on campus, and, like, 20 people a day were like, are you the Maplethorpe kid? It had been 14 years since Jesse McBride jumped up naked onto a chair in his mom's kitchen while her friend Robert took his picture. Now that photo was about to become evidence in an obscenity trial, and U.S. senators were declaring him a victim of exploitation. It was very bizarre. It was just, I, I couldn't, like, People magazine were like, can we come to your campus and interview you and take pictures? And they did. It seemed like all of a sudden, everybody wanted to talk to him. 
there were a lot of like, were you violated? Or, you know, there's all that stuff. And of course I was like, no, it was just, it was a family friend taking pictures. I was totally innocent and I was not forced to do anything. Jesse made his strongest statement when a reporter and photographer for the Village Voice stopped by for an interview. And then they were like, can we take a picture? And do you want to, hey, do you, <laughs> hey, do you want to recreate the picture? And I was like, sure, you want me to take my clothes off? So I, I whipped my clothes off and sat on the back of a chair and spread my legs. And, you know, they took the picture and then was in the Village Voice within a few weeks. Jesse was now a legal adult. He was sending a clear message. Fuck you. This was not child pornography. This is an innocent thing. In the fall of 1990, a jury of eight residents of Hamilton County, Ohio, would decide whether they agreed with Jesse. And the mood in Cincinnati was tense. Good evening. The eyes of the nation are focused on Cincinnati tonight in what is one of the most important and controversial legal issues ever to face this town. This is Cincinnati news anchor Jerry Springer. Yes, that Jerry Springer. On September 24th, 1990, the day the trial against Dennis Berry and the Contemporary Arts Center began. The trial started off with a bang, at least outside the courtroom it did. Art on trial! Art on trial! Hundreds of demonstrators marched outside the courthouse. No art police! Many of them were members of Cincinnati's gay community. Police did not make any arrests today, although sheriff's deputies were wearing rubber gloves, worried apparently about disease. It was obvious to the protesters what had been driving the outrage, that this art was only on trial because it included images of gay men taken by another gay man who had died of AIDS. We feel that this issue is such a strong one that we had to, to make our presence here. This has nothing to do with homosexuality. I mean, this is a big myth. What this has to do is with the Ohio Revised Code. It doesn't differentiate between heterosexual or homosexual sex. But it is true that, you know, some people who were anti-Maplethorpe did revoke it, including Jesse Helms. So that's what it's all about. Garbage such as pictures by Robert Maplethorpe, a known homosexual who died of AIDS and who spent the last years of his life promoting homosexuality. I mean, is it entirely a myth that it is the two homosexuality? It wasn't in terms of Cincinnati. It was. You know, that, that was neither here nor... Totally irrelevant. I mean, if he had been... a heterosexual, and not died of AIDS, we'd have felt the exact same way. It was out of Monty Lobb's hands anyway, now that the trial was underway. It was up to the prosecutors to make their case against the museum. The Contemporary Arts Center could face thousands of dollars in fines. And there was a real danger that Dennis Berry could spend a year in prison for displaying art. I thought very much it could be real. I mean, there were all these things at work that were not in our favor. Things looked bad for Dennis even before the testimony started. The judge ruled that the jury would see only a small part of the Perfect Moment show. Jurors were allowed to judge only seven of the 175 photos. So their view of the exhibit wouldn't include Maplethorpe's photographs of flowers. They would see only two naked children and five images of sadomasochism. Then there was the jury itself. The CAC was hoping for a bunch of sophisticated art lovers but hardly anyone in the jury pool had ever been to a museum outside of a school field trip. So little by little, things looked rather stacked against us, and this is not going to go our way. Look at those uh, and pass them around. There'll be uh, no comments uh, while you look at those photographs. Just pass them right down the line. The prosecutor's strategy was to let the photographs speak for themselves. 
to shock the jury into a guilty verdict. This is not art. Those five pictures are not art. Those are depictions, graphic depictions of sexual activity. The prosecution called only a single expert witness. She said that from a composition standpoint, the picture of Jesse McBride had all the hallmarks of child pornography. That these lines, these geometric moments, the way he had it lined up, the only thing you could look at was their genital. I don't get it. Jesse's mom testified in a deposition. She said the photo wasn't sexual at all, that it was taken with her consent, and that she was happy that it was in the show. The museum side had one main argument, that according to the Supreme Court, something cannot be obscene if it has artistic value. The subject matter has nothing to do with it, and so you shouldn't even consider that. It's the quality. This is H. Lewis Serkin. He represented Dennis Berry. So it was his task to convince the jury that these images of urination and anal penetration were, in fact, art. Art is not just to make us feel good. Art isn't to just be pretty. He brought out experts who spoke about the formal qualities of Maplethorpe's images and the beauty of their composition. That's an extremely symmetrical image. The forearm is in the very center of the picture, which is very characteristic of his flowers, which often occupy the... And it was all aesthetic. Nobody's going to care about aesthetics. Cincinnati art critic Owen Finson was also called to testify. The prosecutor showed him the photo of Maplethorpe with a bullwhip up his anus. They wanted to know how the artist could have possibly taken a photo of himself in that position. Owen explained that a camera could be set on a timer. And they said, well, how long is that time? I said, well, it's usually about 10 seconds. Well, how long does it take to insert the handle of a bullwhip up to your rectum? I looked at the judge and I said, do I have to answer that? Owen told them he had no idea. Today, after having had 10 colonoscopies, I could tell you exactly. (laughs) So then they showed me one picture, close up of a man's rear end, and a man with his arm up his rectum. And they said, do you call that art? I said, well, if you go to a restaurant and you have a meal you don't like, you don't say, that's not food. You could say it's awful art, but it's art. The prosecution also questioned him about the review he'd written, where he'd said that Maplethorpe's images of naked children were harmless. I said, If you look at a picture and you feel something is wrong with it, maybe you should look at your own heart and not at what is on the wall. October 5th, 1990 was the final day of the trial. Both sides had made their closing arguments. Now it was up to the eight jurors. The the judge instructs the jury, and then the jury goes into deliberation. And they said, well, they won't come back until Monday. So we went back to the office, just kind of sitting around. Then we got a phone call saying the jurors are coming back in. And when we heard they're calling us back in, they're calling us back in, we were shocked. They were only out for two hours. We never would have predicted that the jury would just be out as short a time as they were. And, you know, that's when the heart really starts going I mean, the rule of thumb is if they come back real quick, you're in deep shit. So we were all very concerned. So we literally ran back, ran. The staff couldn't even get a seat inside the actual courtroom. The rest of us watched it on closed circuit television. We're seated at the table 
And when they came at him, Dennis is paler than normal. I was, I was scared. You know, they read the verdict. We, the jury in this case, being duly impaneled and sworn to find the defendant not guilty of pandering obscenity. Everything was not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. As soon as they said, I mean, it just, it was ecstatic. We were so relieved and so happy. It's a great day for America. We did something very important in this city. We stood up for the First Amendment. Those eight jurors knew what it was all about. One juror told a reporter, we thought the pictures were lewd, grotesque, disgusting. But like the defense said, art doesn't have to be beautiful or pretty. I remember walking back, the Reds were playing in the playoffs, the baseball team, and they announced a verdict on the loudspeaker. Cheers went up in Red Stadium. We went back to the Contemporary Arts Center and we opened up bottles of champagne. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I remember getting very drunk that night. It was quite a, it was quite a moment. And so what was your immediate reaction when you heard the verdict? A disappointment, but, but it, it wasn't a surprise. Those prosecutors didn't go at it with any kind of zeal. Just like, eh, robotic, check the list, just go through the motions. So we lost the case. I felt like we won the war. In 1990, Monty Lobb told reporters that this wasn't the end of the story, that the trial itself would have a chilling effect. The next time someone wants to come into Cincinnati with something like this or even worse, I have a feeling they'll think twice about it. You haven't had a Maplethorpe since, have we? The cowering of other institutions were part of what they wanted. Dennis Berry says that Monty is right that the winning verdict was in many ways a hollow victory. Institutions definitely self-censored for the next 10 years. No one wanted to be the Contemporary Arts Center. No one certainly wanted to be Dennis Berry. Places were not going to take risks, and indeed they didn't. In 2003, the Contemporary Arts Center moved to a new seven-story building in downtown Cincinnati. On the 25th anniversary of the Perfect Moment show, the CAC opened an exhibition called After the Moment, commissioning artists to reflect on Robert Maplethorpe's legacy. Since 1990, Maplethorpe's stature in the art world has continued to grow. His work is still debated, but it's his treatment of race, not sexuality, that often comes under criticism. As a white man, Maplethorpe focused on photographing black men in his nude portraiture, and he's been accused of objectifying them and fetishizing their bodies. As for his S&M photos, now, more than 40 years after he took them, they remain challenging, but they're no longer challenged. When a massive retrospective of his work opened in Los Angeles in 2016, the exportfolio was displayed without fear and without incident. And the things that I found most moving were like the little Polaroids of like the sink with dishes in it. Jesse McBride lives in L.A. and got to see the exhibition. It brings back memories of downtown New York in that, that sort of innocence of, of the time. When Jesse went to see that Maplethorpe retrospective, there was one image he didn't find on the walls. The photograph of him as a five-year-old naked on a chair. Galleries rarely put that photo on display today. Some museums have even removed it from their websites. Because our sensitivities around children and our awareness of how their images can be exploited 
those are more heightened today than in 1990. The Cincinnati jury was convinced that Jesse's mom had given her consent. But as a five-year-old, Jesse himself couldn't consent to having his naked image live on forever. We are lucky that I get to say I'm okay with it. It is a totally different proposition in this day and age. Now, would it be okay for Robert to take that photograph? I still think it would be okay for Robert to take that photograph. I'm actually thinking about my own children, and, and my wife and I loved our kids to run around naked, and it was so cute, and, you know, you, you have this kind of feeling when you have children of, like, you just want to eat them and cuddle them, and, you know, it's, it's a very sweet moment of innocence that we recognize won't be there forever. And so I think the desire to capture that is sort of understandable. If anything, it just sort of, it makes me feel better about the photograph. Evan Chung is one year's senior producer. Next time, on the season finale of One Year 1990, when a dentist in Florida reportedly transmits HIV to a group of his patients, it kicks off an enormous national controversy. Do not allow your case to be used as a means to draw attention away from the real threat that we, as individuals and as a nation, face from AIDS. If you want to hear all of our one-year episodes without any ads, you should subscribe to Slate Plus. As a member, you'll hear every Slate podcast without ads and never hit the paywall on Slate's website. And at the end of the season, you'll be able to hear a special behind-the-scenes conversation with our team about how we put together our 1990 stories. If you'd like to sign up for Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash one year plus. Again, that's slate.com slash one year plus. This episode of One Year was written by Evan Chung. It was produced by Kelly Jones and Evan Chung, with additional production by Olivia Briley. It was edited by me, Josh Levine, One Year's editorial director, with Joel Meyer and Derek John, Slate's executive producer of Narrative Podcasts. Our senior technical director is Merritt Jacob. Holly Allen created the artwork for this season. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1990 at oneyearatslate.com. You can call us on the one-year hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. The visitor reactions to The Perfect Moment Show were filmed by Bart Everson and Michael Northam. Special thanks to Shawnee Turner and Kate Elliott at the Contemporary Arts Center, Carolyn Krauss, Christina Cotarucci, Madeline Ducharme, Sophie Summergrad, Susan Matthews, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levitt, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with the season finale of One Year 1990.